continue our study on kingdom and exile to kingdom of Christ. We're in Zechariah 13 and 14. We hope to uh, finish the Zechariah part of the series today. It's echoey in here. Is it echoey in here or is this where I'm standing? Get some kind of feedback loop of some sort maybe. Who knows? Anywho. So we're going to try to finish up the Zechariah section today and that'll take us back to Ezra chapter 5. Back where we, we departed as they were trying to starting to build the temple and we went to Haggai and then we went to Zechariah and we'll go back. So that's where we'll go. Um, I like this thing from the Bible Project, the book of Zechariah. It shapes it like a like a roller coaster uh, with startling images, a nonlinear flow of thought. Um, you're invited to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom. There you go. That's everything you could possibly expect to right here. And it really is. Um, this is probably one of the deepest things I've ever tried to study. And I can't tell you that I've really got it figured out. And there's a lot of things, even in the commentaries, they don't. They don't seem to, they seem to argue on and such. Um, I think it all points to the coming of Christ. And, uh, well, today we'll look at Zechariah 13, really looks at the coming of Christ, and 14 really looks at the second coming of Christ. So that's about where you're at. So I can only imagine the people at that time to get this message. They're worried about building the, building the temple and stuff, and, that, you know, they get a message which is going to happen still down the road. There should be hope in that message. God continues to hold his promise. Um, does it inspire them to do work? Does it inspire them to get things together uh, and we know from the story of by the time we get to the New Testament things have just self-destructed Zechariah 13 the Christian dispensation continues to be the focus of the revelation in this brief chapter this is indicated by the triple recurrence of in that day Zechariah 13 1 2 and 4 by Peter's indication a part of the chapter applies to Christians and by Jesus's own identification of himself with the spitten, smitten shepherd, part of Zechariah 13, 5, and 6 are difficult of interpretation. That's Kaufman's commentary, and I'll just leave that as, as that. And we'll look at it that way. So we'll start off with 13, 1. I try to get as many questions in there as I can. No guarantees, okay? You got something you want to add? See something weird? Let it out. So <laughs> just... There, it is. I think every time you look at that text, you see other details. It's like that reminds me of something in the New Testament. Or, hey, that ties to this. And that's, that's how it is. We just sat down and each of us had a, we sat around a, a big table with an open book. And we just tried to talk our way through it. With just the this, uh, this, uh, open Bible, we would see things that way. So Zechariah 13.1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I see four elements in this passage. On that day, the fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So we're going to start by picking through them. And more than anything, we're going to start picking through them because some people will use this, we've talked about before, with the premillennial thought that, there's a, uh, that Jesus will come and, and there will be a physical Israel. We don't look at it that way. When Jesus comes again, it's the end of time. We're in the kingdom now, the church. And that's how we'll, we'll pick it apart. To kind of put the, This one verse will set the setting for the rest of the chapter. And we'll start with the end of it. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In the whole history of the universe prior to the cross of Jesus, did forgiveness exist? Chuck? It had to. 
had to. How in the world could they go into the, the Holy of Holies if they were unclean? That's a good question. Were they unclean or was it temporarily unclean? And when Christ forgave sins, he hadn't died yet. No, he, didn't forget. he hadn't died yet. Yeah, you're right. He forgave, he forgave sins as God. Yeah. So forgiveness existed at that point. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. He did. He, he was able to forgive sin. Yeah, I don't, and even with the, the priests, I mean, there's stories of them. Was it Uzziah? They were so dirty that basically they shut it down as he went into the Holy of Holies. But they had to be cleansed. I don't know if that was forgiven so much as cleansed. You be in the presence of God and have sin. You can't. Yeah. And maybe. Since of God, God was there in the mercy seat. Yeah. yeah. I give you that. You're right. It, uh, he, he would have had to been. You can't have sin with you to be in the presence of God, and God was on the mercy seat. So. On Mount Sinai. With God. Yeah. And talking to God. So clean somehow. Well, at least holy. He had he had to die on the cross for forgiveness to be justified, but it did, but it didn't have to start then. Yeah, and that's I guess really where I'm looking at is to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It has. I'm looking at this being at the cross. Maybe it's not. How about the, how about it's not widely available? It, the, the difference here is this is a fountain that's open, as opposed to a drip. Right. Yeah. I'll give you that. This is a fountain that's open rather than a drip, a spot. Um, yeah, you can spot clean with the best of them, but this is, yeah, I think so. I think I like that better. So it's a good answer. How were sins dealt with under the law of Moses? Like that, the spot cleaning of the high priest, the spot cleaning of as Jesus basically forgave people. How were sins typically dealt with under the law of Moses? Made a sacrifice, and they were just rolled forward, right? They were revisited each year. Sacrifices were there. The high priest took that to God. Once a, once a year, he went into the Holy of Holies. Is that right? Holy of Holies, Holy of Holies. So once a year, those sins were remembered. They were revisited. Um, so let's go to the fountain, like Chuck's talked about. What fountain was open to cleanse sin and uncleanness? Once what fountain opened the cleanse in? The fountain free for you and me. Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood, yeah. Song 909, the invitation song. Oops. Here, I'll give you a better one. My throwing's not what it used to be. So, yeah, blood of Jesus. Oh, that Chuck? My kitchen has never been. <laughs> it's not really, especially if you have bifocals, it's even worse. So the blood of Jesus is the fountain that's opened. It also will be the fountain of living water. Jesus describes himself as the living water several times, so it's his blood, the living water, and they're all the same guy. But that could be look either way. You can look at it as a fountain that way. Yep. It was everybody, including Gentiles. Yes. That was a big... That was a big change. That's how much of a fountain it is. It's, yeah, you're right. It's not just the high priest. It's not the one that Jesus came in contact with. It's not even just the, the Jews. It's like you say, it's the Gentiles. All of a sudden, it's open to anybody. Everybody in the world is just open to it. 
if we know what the fountain was and that it cleansed, cleansed, not one of those days, and it cleansed sin, what is that day? Any clue on what that day would be? Hard to say whether it was the day he resurrected or it was the day of Pentecost. A lot of discussion on that, too. There really is. There's a lot of discussion on that. The church starts on the day of Pentecost. Um, the resurrection, death is defeated. Sin is, you know, if death's defeated, sin's defeated, too. So, yeah, I would, I would go with the day of Pentecost, to be honest. What happens the, in that time between, you know, we, there's some really neat stuff that happens there, but what happens to people during that time frame? Not my call, above my pay grade, but um, anyways, and on that day, could be the day of Pentecost, it's probably really referring to just we're in the last days. Christ could come again any day. It's the time of Christ. It's really, so day, sometimes it becomes an era, uh, Time frame, so it doesn't have to be a 24-hour day, but this is in that time. Some versions use the word "in," and it makes more sense. Like "in that day," refers to the the church more so than anything. But the fountain cleanses us. If we know the fountain was who it cleansed in that day. What was it open for? Who was it open for? It says it was open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So who would these people have to be? Ah, the Jews. If we know it was Jesus that was the fountain. Mm -hmm. just, when it describes the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You'd think it's the Jews, but it's probably the spiritual, it's the spiritual Jerusalem, spiritual Israel versus the physical Israel is really what it would be. So, maybe the church, we're the ones that clan, our clans, we're the ones that received the, the, the blessing from the fountain. And I can see, like I said, with the premillennial thought, I can see how that gets really easily confused. It says the house of David, and that would be like the physical, you can see that being the physical inhabitants. And that's where being prophecy and the, the symbolism and stuff, and you've got to pick out the parts, pick out the parts of the New Testament, and you work your way from there. It's the best I can do. Um, verse 2, the beginning of it. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from that land, so they shall be remembered no more. Can you give me examples of idol worship in the Old Testament? Can you name an idol in the Old Testament? Baal. Uh, Brent said that. Look at that. He turned them one down. So Baal was an idol in the Old Testament. Anybody else got another one? Molech. Asherah. Asherah. Asherah, Molech, Baal. Those are the three most popular ones. How do you worship one of those idols? Paganism would be just a good word for it, wouldn't it? Just, that kind of tells it all. We don't even have to get into it. Just pure paganism. Whatever feels good, whatever everybody else does. Um, can you give me examples of idol worship in the New Testament? Um, you know, that's good. I like that. That's Old Testament. We'll take the Old Testament. That's a good answer for Old Testament. How about the New Testament? Diane. They still worship them, yeah. They're worshiping the goddess Diana. 
Um, is he Roman? Ephesus, right? This is a Roman one, wasn't it? Maybe so. Who's saying one? Diana or Artemis? And it doesn't really matter so much to us. Yeah, probably right. Probably. Is that Ephesus? Is that where it's at? Ephesus is a swamp. They got a big. That temple of Diana, my understanding, if you take Walmart and you go up. I think if you take the, our Lowe's and our Walmart and you add them together, that's about the size of the Temple of Diana. 300,000 square feet would be about the size of that, is what I understood. Built about on a big meteorite. And yeah, and they, had, they had worship there, and they had silversmiths, and they had some of that kind of thing that was still there at that time. So that still, still happened. Is the name of Asherah even mentioned in the, in the New Testament? Never, never thought about that one, did you? It disappeared. It's not in the New Testament. How about Molech? It's not in the New Testament either. How about Baal? One time. <laughs> it appears in Romans 11:4. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's a recounting of the story of Elijah. So it's there, but that's it. Those names disappear in the New Testament, just like this prophecy says. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so they shall be remembered no more. We remember them because they're in the Old Testament. But they, they're not there. Uh, and this is a weird one. I don't know if it's weird, but it's a historical fact. In 380 AD, the Edict of Thessalonica was issued by three reigning Roman empire, emperors to profess that religion to profess that religion, which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter, according to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Idol worshipers were called foolish madmen and were branded with the ignominious name of heretics, according to Wikipedia. So I got to start on that from, excuse me, from Kaufman's notes. But anyways... Russian, Roman, empires, Roman emperors actually put out a law that banned pagan worship. They closed down their temples and stuff in 380 AD, and they recognized the Christ of the uh, Apostle Peter. We won't get into what that became, but that is... Uh, it was the three guys. Were, one was the Eastern, and one was the Western, and there was another guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it becomes polluted, but it's, it's officially recognized, anyways, versus the pagan type stuff. And, you know, even to go to a stack, uh, the extent of passing a law, it was, you know, man noticed it at least. We'll put it that way. Susan? Oh, yeah. I like that. You're right. At that time, yeah, you're right. They had the, yeah, they had the meat offered to idols. I know, you don't want the chocolate. I'll give it a chug. So, uh, yeah, the eating of the meat offered to idols was, a, was an issue, and that's in Romans 14? 
think it's from Romans 14. That become, that's an issue at that point. And uh, so, yeah, and they're still worshiping idols. But anyway, this prophecy says it goes away. Is really what the key is. It's still there. We talked about it before. There's still people worship money, fame, media, but it's not. I think we. St I think by and large, it's looked at different. So we'll put it that way. Picking up in the two, second end of verse two, and I also will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him. You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. With the coming of Christ, false prophets would also be cut off. They exist. We see some of those in the, in the New Testament. There's still some today. They profess the end of the world. But by and large, they're cut off. They're not given heedance. Some people do. But anyways, we must resist the inclination of some to associate the true prophets of God with the cutting off here. True, there would become a period after the New Testament was given, which prophesies would be done away, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. But that is definitely not the view here. All the prophets of the New Testament session, along with apostles, would lay the foundations of Christ, the church, and the New Testament. It's Coffin. So, anyways, they'll still exist. They're just not. They're separated. They didn't do too well. Was it David Caress and uh, Jim Jones? Yeah, David Caress, Jim Jones. Prophets, prophets of God, and met their demise. Yes, they they were both pro they claimed to be a lot of damage. They got a lot of people believing them. A lot of uh, money flowed into them. Uh, like you said, they met their end. They met their own. Uh, they cut off. Doesn't happen just immediately when the mouth opens. It just uh, and there's there's always some of that. Um. Yeah, First Corinthians thirteen eight. In the that's the love chapter. All these will go away, and all what will be left is what faith, hope, and love. Second Corinthians thirteen four through six. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, "I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. For a man sold me to, in my youth." And if one asks, "What are those wounds on your back?" He will say, "The wounds I received in the house of my friends." So this um, describes the utter banishment of pagan priests for the credibility of the days of Messiah. Whole institution of false prophets, pro paganism, become unpopular. Like you say, it's unpopular today. You would think that today paganism would just reign, wouldn't you? I mean, with social media, you could start your own pagan church or something, you know, your pagan group, but it doesn't really, I know the world still runs by that, but it doesn't, it doesn't really catch on so much. We're, Anywho, maybe if you were more woke. Uh, the wounds in verse 6 translated also as between your arms or on your body. In this version, the English Standard Version I've put, it says uh, the wounds on your back. So some versions have different words. Um, verse 6 is tied to Christ, which we talked about earlier. What would those wounds be? And what would... Do I have that? Yeah. Verse 6 is tied to Christ. What would the wounds be, and what would be the house of my friends? Well, the people that left his teaching, and then later on, when he actually was, was beaten. So. Yeah. 
there's a meeting later on. Uh, he takes he takes a lot of garbage as he's uh, as he's teaching too. Yeah. There's different places that says and some actually left, didn't follow. They didn't believe. They, they didn't believe. Took Yeah. And like I said, the physical beatings, cross back, the the lashes that are received could be that. Um, whether it's on his back or between his arms, a lot of times we can even think of the the hands between his arms. Chuck. Yeah, your house of friends would be the apostles. It could, it, it could be. Yeah, he's doing it for them, and they're they don't understand it. They take well, you take the triumphal entry early in the week. People are cheering him on, you know, and it's it's Jesus, it's the Christ. They're cheering him on. By the end of the week. Some of these same people are yelling, crucify him. Like I said, they don't even know. The wounds that they have is, is from them. They came back around what? Yes, yeah, so they came back around in 2.30. Okay. The last chapter of Matthew, because I was reading that this week, where he tells them to go on, he's going to meet them in Galilee. Mm -hmm. This is after his resurrection. It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And that's at the very, when he's there. I mean, he's returned. And he says, he came to them and spoke to them, and he said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. So I, I had just never read that. I guess I've read the verse before. But thinking that at that point, some of those same disciples doubted. It would be something hard to, hard to understand. And that I wouldn't do the same thing. Yeah, you, you don't know. That's the thing. Yeah. It, yeah. Oh. Well, it looks like I didn't have the verse in there, the question I wanted to ask also. If you don't try that to Christ, if you tie that to the false prophet, take verse 6 and you call it, if that's tied to the false prophet, what would the wounds be? what would the house of my friends be? Because you can kind of analyze this either way. False prophets of paganism, what would their wounds be? If they had wounds between their arms and on their back? Probably worship of the pagans. I mean, the, the idol worship themselves, they might beat themselves as part of that, that worship, the cutting of the Cut, it's be self-inflicted would probably be the direction I'm going in their worship they're releasing blood from themselves so they would cover that with a lie of saying these wounds are received in the house of my friends you know that but it also might be the house you know their pagan place of worship would be the house of their friends so it could be that way too which is right who knows but anyways it's a possibility either way with that 13.7 Awake, O sword, against my Lord, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. We can use Jesus' words predicting Peter's denial to add credibility to this being about the Messiah. Um, Matthew 26, 31. I think it's also Mark 14, 26. When Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me and this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So that ties this 
to the Messiah. Uh, in that light, who would be my shepherd? Had to be Jesus, right? Had to be. Um, Chuck taught last week and he had two shepherds. He had a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And it doesn't, doesn't tie back to the bad shepherd. It just ties really to the good shepherd. What would the sword represent? Waco sword against my shepherd. Roman authority. Roman authority. That's what it is. Yeah. The sword represents Roman authority. Who would be the sheep that were scattered with God's hand and God's hands turns against them? Say it again. God's people scattered pretty quick too. They really did and they scattered pretty quick. Apostles scattered. One that really kind of stayed with him, that was John. John stayed there. His mom was... Mary was at the, uh, at the crucifixion, right? The crucifixion, but at the trial, John was there at the trial. John was at the trial. Peter was outside. Yeah. Everybody else was gone. Everybody. Gone. For them? Well, no, I just agree. <laughs> Peter, of course, very definitely said, I'm not going to, but he did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He said, I'll stand with now. Easy history, too. Um, the part about I'll turn my hand against the little ones. This also ends ends uh, the Jews. It ends Israel, the Hebrews. This is kind of the end of that. Doesn't necessarily physically scatter them, but they don't have that shepherd. They don't have that the relationship. So that's kind of part of that. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. This division happens today, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and the brood is broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So it talks about this two-thirds and the one-third. It's just really a division thing. We know about the wide gate and the narrow gate, and this really points towards that. Um, I put this third in the fire and refine them as one refined silver. Test them as gold is tested. I will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Tribulations in our lives refine us. Is really what that goes to. That's the end of Zechariah 13. Like I said, it's prophecy. It's, you know, it's, it's Old Testament. It's while and they're still trying to, they just came out of Babylonian captivity. This stuff points to Christ. This is, and really that's the whole key to it is it points towards the church being the kingdom of God. It points to the Messiah coming. It does not point to a physical Jerusalem being set up that would be God's kingdom. So that's really the key to it. So it's deep. <laughs> it's deep, isn't it, Chuck? It's hard to, it's hard to wade through this stuff. So um, did I hit everything exactly? I'm going to tell you, you i got to study a again and again and come up with stuff different. But the key is, it points to Christ. Moving into 14, there's such a resemblance between this chapter and Zechariah, that of Matthew 24, that it is safe to suppose that Jesus' words in the New Testament may actually be understood partially as an expansion and elaboration of this very prophecy. Um, it started out with Matthew 24, verse 3 at least. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He talks, Jesus had talked about he'll tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And a lot of the, Matthew 24 gets into um, 
uses some apocalyptic language. It's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the end times, eschatology, is really what it gets into. Roseanne? Okay. He answers two different questions, and so I'm trying to put it in. Some, some of his stuff in Matthew 24 refers to the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem. And you could say even all of it really sets up to that, and that is a type or a prototype of the second coming of Christ, the destruction of the world. So short and long on prophecy, you can be a type, prototype, however you want to. Theological uh, terminology, they usually use the word type, and that's just kind of strange to me. So it's kind of a prototype. So destruction of Jerusalem will happen in AD 70. That really points towards also the second coming, the destruction of the world. And that's what this chapter really points towards, is the second coming of Christ. It kind of does a little bit of both, but that's really what it comes to. Anyhow, we'll hit it, and we'll see what we get out of it. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 2 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest, rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Looking at this as a literal overthrow of Jerusalem in AD 70, how will the nations gather against Jerusalem? Any ideas on that one? Basically, the Roman Empire. It was people from everywhere. It was it was the it was the army of other countries. It was the it was an empire, so that's who gathered against the physical Jerusalem. Um, looking at this as a time leading up to the second coming of Christ, how did the nations gather against spiritual Jerusalem to the church? This is almost something if we had a PowerPoint screen over here and a PowerPoint screen over here, you could put the AD 70 stuff over here and you could put the end of time over here and separate them. But how does the world's armies, how do the nations gather against the church? It's always there, isn't it? It's continual. It'll happen until, until Christ comes again. The world tries to stamp out the church. They try to stamp out the uh, truth. Um, they try to stamp out the word of God. They try to stamp out the forgiveness. There's another thing you see just stamp out. You can pick a lot of stuff. But the world itself comes against the church. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And at the second coming of Christ, what will happen to those nations that oppose God's will and oppress his people? They'll see the truth then, right? They come under the, under the feet of Christ. It'll be his footstool. Um, what's that? At some point, every knee will bow. Yeah, every knee will bow at, that, at some point. At, every po at some point, every knee will bow. Zechariah 14.4, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. This is quite an image, isn't it? 
feet of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two. And uh, it moves. So when was Jesus at the Mount of Olives? Again, this is the premillennial thing. says that when Jesus comes again, he will come down on the Mount of Olives. It's not what we teach. but So I will show you why we don't teach that. Was Jesus already at the Mount of Olives? Heard of it. Right there, right? Anybody got any, any time frame of when he was there? I got a couple of events. Can't be too many rounds long, it's still takes some time. He thinks the Garden of Gethsemane when he went one way to pray, but he doesn't think that's on the Mount of Olives. I don't think it is either. I didn't put together an extensive list. And so. when he went to pray, he left his disciples outside and they went to sleep. Yeah, I think that's what Chuck's talking about. Yeah, he, he went away to pray and he came back and they were asleep already. So. Home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was in Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. His ascension was from the Mount of Olives. So those are two times that he was already there. Uh, yeah. Which may be the tie-in to quote the Mount of Olives, but you know, if you look at the imagery that's in Revelation, the first reaping is of all the faithful. Mm-hmm. But an, an, an angel, Christ doesn't do the second reaping, no. which is of all the unfaithful. Yeah. I told him that back on Matthew 27, uh, 28, he told him to go to Galilee. They went to a mountain. It says into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. That was where he... He told them he was going to meet them. Yeah, when he came back, back from the dead, that's where he was going to meet them. Yeah. That's where he gave them going to all the world, you know. Yeah. Great commission. Well, great Anyways, he was there, like Chuck says, I can see it too. He left, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. He said, you see him go, he'll come back. Or people will think he'll come back right there. Um, what he does is so great, it's not even, it can't be physically tied to a spot, really. So, as he comes back. What imagery here can be used to describe the division in the world brought about by the gospel? So, what imagery here can you use to describe the division in the world? The gospel divides. It shouldn't, but it does. Shall be split. There's a split? Yeah. Uh, Mount of, Mount of Olives should be split in two from east to west. That shows the, the, the rift from the gospel. What else? There's a wide valley that pops up. Now, wide valley is kind of, you know, if you have the gospel and those who don't have the gospel, how do you cross that valley? You can't without the gospel. It's kind of where it points towards. 
14.5, you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Josephus recounts the amazing, unnecessary, and incredible, these are Coughlin's words, withdrawal from Cestius Gallus. Upon his besieging Jerusalem, he retreated from the city without any just occasion in the world. Of course, it was during that interval that every Christian, having heeded Jesus' warning, had opportunity to escape and flee. It was indeed an earthquake that opened up a way of escape. In this, there is also a pledge that in the great Holocaust that shall conclude our age, not a single Christian shall be lost. This is recounted in Josephus. Josephus is, is uh, known as a historian of the time. So his account, there were no Christians that, were, that perished in the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And he accounts that to the fact that the guy who was doing the siege just stopped. He pulled back and stopped for some reason. And they all knew the warning that came here from Zechariah, and they ran. So that's about as all we got. There are no CNN tapes. There are no, uh, that's, that's all we got. So take it as it, what it is there. Um, I like the part at the end where it says, um, not a single Christian shall be lost at the end. Like we talk about the end of time, Christ will take his. will take the faithful with him. There will not be some that slip out of his grasp. There will not be some that got missed. There will not be a single Christian that just gets forgot and will just be lost. What's that? We will join him in the air. We will join him in the air. So, that, and that's the good news. You won't say, what if I miss it? What if I... There won't be. I'm going to skip ahead just to finish off this chapter so we can move back to Ezra. I think sometimes we, we like I said, earlier in Zechariah, this stuff was really helped the story align. Verses, chapters 9 through 14... It shows that Christ is coming, and it take it for where you want. On a day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. A unique day, only known by the Lord. We know that as judgment day, the last day. It will be one day when it happens. We don't know when it is. It will come like a thief in the night, is what we've been told. Only God knows when that day is. Christ doesn't even know when that day is, right? God the Father knows. Only God the Father knows when that day is. At evening time, there shall be light. As that happens, even those who didn't believe the gospel, those who did not believe in Christ, will see the truth. You can believe it now, you can believe it later. It's still going to happen. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the east eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it shall continue in summer as in winter living waters from the new testament is christ the gospel the gospel of christ shall flow from jerusalem jerusalem represents the church that's where the gospel flows from um, it should flow for more than just this orange carpet it's going to flow to the east to the west North to south, it shall flow everywhere, right? 
As we go, it goes. In summer as in winter, all the times. The living water shall flow out of the church with a big C. I like to use church with a big C to make it represent the body of Christ. I like to use the church with a little C to represent a congregation. So the church with a big C, the gospel continues to flow, the victory message. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over the earth, all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Picking up verse 10 and 11, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft under its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate from the tower of Henanel the king's wine presses and it shall be inhabited for thou shalt never again be a decree of utter destruction Jerusalem shall dwell in security again let's talk about the church the church is secure the church will last until Jesus comes again the church will not, be, will not go away the church will not be replaced destroyed or whatever it has that security that shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people peoples that wage war against Jerusalem their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths and on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold silver and garments in great abundance and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Jerusalem in this verse represents the church, the, the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem. Judah represents the secular, the earthly Israel. So even the old, the, the secular will fight against the spiritual. Um, you see that with the Sanhedrin when they decide that Jesus has to die. The reason they said that? We'll lose our place. We'll lose our money. We'll lose our power. And this is what you see is, um, is that battle against what becomes the church. And everyone who survives of all the, the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths. What did the Feast of Booths commemorate to the Jews? There, when they were in the, in the desert. What's that? When they were in the desert, wasn't it? Yeah, as they wandered in the desert. They had the promised land, but they had 40 years of wandering. It commemorated, commemorated God taking care of them at that time. It also would represent our wandering. Our Heaven's our promised land. As we go through life, that's our path. 17, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Family Egypt does not go up and present themselves, and on them there shall be no rain. There shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations to go on to keep the feast of booths. Anyways, we'll just finish it out. A couple verses there. Like I say, it's the second coming is what this chapter really points to. We're going back to Ezra 5 next week. So that's where we'll be back and in that and see what happens there. All right, thanks for joining me.